HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. With Shift Work, a podcast made in collaboration with RWCF and HRN, we're shifting the conversation about how the restaurant food you love makes its way to the table. Listen to and follow Shift Work on your favorite podcast app. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. This is Monday, February 7th, 2022, and I'm doing a special on-the-road episode. I'm out here in Framingham, Massachusetts, somewhere between Worcester and Boston, and uh, we're kind of getting ready for the Craft Malt Conference, so I'm tracking down a brewer who uses a lot of local malt, and uh, I've been wanting to meet for many years, and uh, let him introduce himself. Hi, my name is Matthew Steinberg. I'm the co-founder and head brewer at Exhibit A Brewing Company here in Framingham. Been here about five and a half years. Excited to talk about local grains. That's great, man. So the Craft Malt Conference is coming up. Um, We're doing a number of shows in and around local malt and craft malt over this month of February 2022. But going way back with you, man, 2016, we're on the road up in Finger Lakes, New York. I was with a friend who's also your friend, Tor Eschner. And he pulled out a beer that he said he was drinking all that year, and it was Exhibit A Brewing, some kind of beer with Danko Rye. So tell me about that beer and the whole connection between the maltster and how you end up getting grain from you know New York and other places. I want to hear your whole story because you're quite an amazing person and that you really have been focused on local sourcing. And um, to me, that's really the future of um, what's going on now in craft beer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I met Tor through Andrea and Chris at Valley Malt. Uh, I want to say it was probably 2013 or 2014. Uh, They had an event called Barley Fest, and it took place in Amherst. And we had beer dinners and seminars. And, uh, you know, the the folks at Hardwick College presented to us about, uh, you know, grain the science of all of this and the farming and all. And so I meet Tor, I find out he's this amazing farmer and incredible guy. And he has this rye and he has this amazing warthog wheat. So uh, flash forward to when we opened, we decided we got to make this, we got to use some of this Danko. And we decided to uh, highlight it in this kind of 6% Simcoe driven IPA uh, with roughly 30% rye malt. And, uh, yeah, it's a fun one for us. We brew it four or five times a year. And uh, actually, we just brewed a batch last week. 
So it's pretty exciting. I, I got to make sure I try that. So we're, we're out at the brewery. And um, tell us, like, how, how you got started and why – I know you mentioned a little bit, but why did you get so into, you know, using local malt – and, and you're part of this Northeast Grains Shed Alliance. Yeah, I mean, it didn't occur to me to not care about the ingredients. You know, when I started homebrewing, I was in Flagstaff, Arizona, and I'm buying like German malt and English malt and German hops and, you know, hop, you know hops from the Pacific Northwest. But there was nothing from where I was, uh, aside from the water and the, uh, you know, the effort, the labor. There was nothing local. So I immediately started thinking about like, what can I do? to have a local material in my beer. So I grew hops uh, in in the yard and we used a little bit, you know, but then as I grew from a home brewer to a professional brewer, I started to realize that there really wasn't a lot available. You know, back 23 years ago, you could not find uh, local grains or local hops uh, in the Northeast. And so, you know, my career just went the way it was. I couldn't find these things. I you know, used uh, the best quality things we could find. And then, you know, when I was working in Amherst at a little brew pub there, uh, High Horse, uh, I came across uh, Andrea and Chris at Valley Malt, and they were like, oh, we're, we're malting, you know, we're malting barley and wheat uh, here in the Valley. Uh, we'd love to talk to you about uh, getting some of the grains into those beers. So we bought in right away. We started using their grains immediately and, uh, you know, presented the beers as truly local you know so what was the challenge of of using local malt uh rather than you know more of a mainstream malt where you know everything about it i think the biggest challenge was just the unknown we didn't know what it would deliver we didn't know the you know how how efficient they would be we didn't necessarily know what flavors they would deliver and what we discovered was they were actually delivering flavor that was kind of unique to our region. So I started to think about, you know, all these German style beers or English style beers or, uh, you know, other beers that take from a, from a place. Kolsch is a great example. You know, Arcady Two Shoes is like that. So if you, for a moment, think like as an American brewer, I'm adjusting my water, I'm adjusting my mash regimen to match something to kind of try to get an authentic tribute to, say, a style from Germany. Well, why do I need to do that? I can just brew a beer with our flavors, with our terroir, and create a unique beer that's, you know, truly regional. Wow, that's right on. I think when I first met Andrea Stanley at Valley Malt, um, they were they initially, about 2014, did want to send some malt down to New York and, and New York brewers, and we did an event with her. But it seemed that very quickly... She was selling all her malt to just this this part of Massachusetts. Yeah, I mean, a lot of breweries jumped on board with them early on. You know, our buddies at uh, Wormtown Brewing, and uh, certainly uh, there's there's other breweries in the area. I can't name them who use them now, but there's plenty. Um, and uh, you know, that was a kind of an interesting time because we all of a sudden everybody kind of wanted it that knew about it, right? If you knew how great, how great it was, how the quality was there, freshness, uh, you know, original style malts too. Like they weren't just kind of emulating what already exists. They were actually creating new things that we could use and create beers around those malts. Wow. And you're a great indie craft brewery. I mean, I, I've been staying north of Boston and uh, there's a great store there called RMA Craft Beer in Amesbury. And 
he only gets your beers if I ask for it. <laughs> Occasionally he'll get he'll get a couple of them. Um, how, how do you how did you figure out your distribution? You know, you, you, you're an indie brewery, and it it seems right now that it's 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 hard. But you guys are just making amazing beer, and I'm always drawn to the indie breweries, and more than ever, the breweries using craft malt. Yeah, um, I mean, we started as a self distributing brewery. We had one truck, one salesperson who also collected checks and took orders and all of that. Uh, I think the hardest part was, you know, finding the right stores to sell our beers in, being picky about that. We didn't have a lot of beer to go around, so we had to kind of pick and choose who was able to get our beer. Uh, you know, back in those days, one might even say that we were kind of selfish with our beers. And I kind of wear that with a badge of honor, you know. Um, two years in, we decided, okay, it's time to release our beers to the to the you know to our host to a wholesaler uh we partnered with atlantic beverage distributors uh out of holliston massachusetts and they brought us from 200 retailers that we were self-managing up to now we're in over 1500 retailers in massachusetts that's amazing yeah it feels pretty good um and uh you know cat's meow is our is it, as if it's our flagship if you want to call it that that's about 50 percent of our volume and it's in all 1500 of those accounts um, our other beers are in some of those accounts or most of those accounts. And we have, a, you know, five beers in our core portfolio plus seasonals and one-offs and things like that. Uh, we, we have also expanded outside of Massachusetts to New York, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Maine. Um, and, uh, you know, I will say that some of those expansions are pretty minimal. Like we don't ship a lot of beer to New York, but my brother lives in New York. So I got to be in New York with the <laughs> that sounds good to me. Same with Maine. My daughter's in college in Maine. So why not, you know, tie our trips up there and go to Navari and drink our beers there at other places as well. Um, we also sell our beer in Arizona and, and California. Uh, we also do direct shipment to various markets that legally allow us to. So we're in um, Virginia and uh, Nebraska, um, Washington, D.C., um, New Hampshire, Mass. There's a few others that we can ship beer directly to, Pennsylvania. Um, actually, I don't know about Pennsylvania. I might be making that up. Um, and, uh, and then Japan. We sell beer in Japan. Well, we're going to have to make a map of all the states you're in so we can take a tour. Yeah. Uh, let's open this up and, and tell me the backstory again of this beer. And is this a Massachusetts terroir beer? Well, I would say that this has, you know, this has some 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 malt that's uh, processed here in Massachusetts, but it also has some German malt. In Cheers. Beer. Cheers to you. Goody Two Shoes. This is our Kolsch. Mm. And this was canned last week, so it's fresh and beautiful. Um, so to me, like, this is kind of the soul of our brewery. Uh, I care a lot about the Kolsch style. Anybody who's talked to me about brewing or beer styles or what's your favorite, what's your desert island beer, Kolsch is that beer generally for me. Um, there's a lot of really good examples coming out these days. I'd like to say that we're kind of trying to lead that pack a little bit, uh, certainly here in Massachusetts. Um, Goody Two Shoes has uh, some of Tora's wheat. Uh, it also has um, a grain in it called Vavavom, which is basically a dextrin malt that, that Andrea and Chris developed for us and other brewers. But um, but I kind of tasked them with it, and I was like, hey, I need this grain. I want to buy it from you. Let's do it. And so uh, it's a really beautiful dextrin malt. It gives the beer a little more body uh, and some nice texture. You know, you're, now you're getting me to where I want it to go in the, in the world of craft malt. Andrea had mentioned, uh, talk about the dextrin malt story. <laughs> So, just 
tell, tell us how you worked with with the monsters on that and why that's so important to this beer. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to find a way to still have a very dry beer that has some mouthfeel. Cheers. Cheers. That. Mm. And it's, it's a challenge. Like, we want a low mash temperature so the beer dries out and attenuates fully. Um, so there's not a lot of residual sugar, but we wanted the beer to have uh, some body to it and some uh, texture to it that would be delivered only through kind of unfermentable sugars, right? So to balance that is not necessarily easy. There's a lot of malts that you can buy that will kind of try to perform that or, you know, they're they're designed to perform that way. Uh, we we went through several batches with with Valley Malt to find this sort of sweet spot, and they seem to really have nailed it. And we're buying a lot of this grain. You know, it's in almost every beer we brew. And, uh, you know, it's a, a relatively small percentage. You're talking about 8 or, eight or 10% of the grist, um, which is, a, is actually a similar amount that we use uh, wheat and some other grains in the beer, um, Vienna as well. And so Vienna from Valley Malt, not from Germany. Of course. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, so it's... it's um, it's really nice to be able to start from that ground up and and uh, create something basically that doesn't exist yet. And I. So what was that process of of like exploring this ingredient? Did you have a set recipe and you were looking for certain, you know, measurable qualities? Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, diastatic power and uh, and just the the ability for the grain to do its thing based on our needs. I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if I did, I could tell you all of the things that we wanted out of this barley. Um, you know, like I said, there's other companies that make grains like this, other dextrin malts. There's, you know, Wireman makes their version and RAR makes their version and Simpsons makes their version. Uh, but there really wasn't anything coming from local malt houses that would deliver what we were looking for. And, and Chris and Andrea just kind of knew from the conversations that we had, what I wanted and what I was trying to get it to deliver in our beers. Um, and I, I believe that even our hop forward beers, whether they're our, our IPAs like Danko or the Cat's Meow, and we have Just a Kitten here that we'll taste, um, you know, malt is so vital to these beers. And sometimes the kind of like attention on hops kind of pulls away from, I think, the, you know, the validity of, of and the importance of malt and uh and grain in the beer so so let's talk about you so it sounds like you're a science guy and to, and, and maybe maybe the future of craft beers is, is science plus this agriculture yeah. tell us a little more about about you and what what skills you brought that that is making these beers so good uh i'd like to just say that i'm lucky <laughs> i uh i definitely am not a scientist uh i went to school for business uh, my stepfather growing up, though, he was the earth science teacher at my high school department had a science. So he put it in me big time. You know, he constantly was like science, no matter what you do, is important. Mathematics, no matter what you do. I was a musician in those days, uh, still kind of twiddle around a little bit on the guitar. And I used to play saxophone. Um, math is so important, you know, in those things. And I can't even tell you how much I mean, I was using crazy math this morning, just trying to figure out some inventory things, you know, and, uh, for me, the art and the science meet somewhere. You mean like 1,001, 1,002? Count in order. It's nutty. End of month stuff. It's, you know, I, people think that brewing beer is just like, you know, mashing in and 
hoping for the best. It's actually a lot of math and counting and business operations that I never anticipated. Um, but yeah, I, I do kind of lean on the, the art, uh, side of things as far as like when I design or conceptualize a beer. Um, and I understand what the science does and I understand how to make our systems work with that. I don't pretend for a minute that I'm a, a scientist, uh, and we don't have, um, we, we have a laboratory here and we have someone that's managing that. Uh, and he's amazing, Andrew Gill. And so Andrew, you know, he observes our yeast. He's the one that's kind of in charge of the management of our yeast, which I think is really where the science is, you know, and, and, uh, I, I feel like the conceptualization of these recipes, as much as it is reliant on the science, it is very much about the art. And for us, like developing the flavors we're looking for. Well, I'm here drinking beers with Matthew at Exhibit A Brewing. We're drinking the Goody Two Shoes Kolsch style ale. That's really why I came here, man. Because <laughs> there's there's nothing like drinking beer with the brewer. Um, so in terms of science and everything, I, I just want to go into like different types of grain. So I know uh, for my world, the, the early local malt talk was about also getting growers to you know work with rye and, and emmer and other traditional hardy northeastern grains. So um, I know you're a part of the, the Northeast Grain Shed Alliance. Let's talk about the, the farming side and, and the grain side and that organization, because I know that that's one of the things where you really stand out, and I'm really proud of you and proud to meet you. Yeah, I'm I'm super proud of the Northeast Grain Shed Alliance and what we what we're putting together. Uh, you know, our brewery Exhibit A Brewing is a founding member, uh, among many other breweries that are founding members. Um, I happen to also be on the advisory board, and I'm also on the Square Foot Project. So the Square Foot Project basically is a way for us to give a measurement of how much farm we're how much farmland we're supporting with these beers. So. Uh, the, the math is is fun, but really what it comes down to is for every pint of beer that uses local grains, we're supporting uh, anywhere between, say, two and six square feet of farmland. Uh, the, the important part of that, obviously, we could talk about, like, you know, the work that goes into it. These farmers have all this land and they have ways to, you know, manage that land. And if they can grow grain as a cover crop and then some other uh, you know, whatever else they're growing on their land, we can support them uh, by kind of guaranteeing that this that these grains will be purchased, processed and purchased. Uh, that part's very exciting because I think one of the parts that farmers struggle with a lot is just, we're going to grow it, but who's going to buy it? You know, and so there's this kind of give and take with that. Um, we're, we're actually in the process now, we're about to brew the first of many, hopefully, square foot project collaboration beers. Uh, we're brewing it at Big Alice Brewing in, in Long Island City. Uh, John down there is going to be... Uh, John and Kyle, my yeah, brothers. Yeah, I, I haven't met them face-to-face, -face, I don't think, but we've been on the phone a ton, and uh, we're going to go down there for the beer, for the for the brew. And, um, and I, know, I think that um, they're speaking at the Craft Mall Conference, yeah, too. John, I think they both are. Um, I'm not sure. I just saw Big Al, so it might be John. Yeah, I think John is speaking for sure. Um, he's on a panel, I think, and, and doing his thing. Uh, the other breweries uh, that are involved with that, we've got... Kent Falls, uh, Barry from Connecticut is coming, and uh, I'm going to forget all the other breweries, but uh, Amory's Tomb here in Massachusetts, uh, and us, and 
Uh, I don't remember. I'm trying to think of all the other breweries. No, no, it's it's on the list. And then when I actually just look at the Northeast Grains uh, Grain Shed Alliance, I when I, I spend I spend more time up in the Boston area, and I want to go to all those businesses. I want to go to the bakeries. I want to go to the breweries. I want to meet meet the farmers. So it's uh, it it's really a, a to me it, it's show putting the spotlight on New England just how these small farms and small businesses are working together. And uh, I think it's a model for the the whole nation. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this is the lead up to Square Foot Saturday, which is the inaugural first time we're going to do it. It's April 2nd, 2022. Uh, And the idea is to just really promote the use of local grains um, on that day and every day. But certainly on that day, it's, you know, April 2nd will kind of hopefully be one of those ways of getting people to come out and in support of square foot wait this is cool man (laughs) square foot saturday is april 2nd it is square foot saturday is april 2nd and we're uh we're i didn't even tell you what kind of beer we're making but we're using hudson valley malts and valley malts and we're creating a kind of five and a half to six percent amber lager like a vienna lager um simple beer malt focused and that was kind of the idea. We were like, we should just make sure that we're brewing a beer that really kind of highlights what it is these farmers do every day and what the processes are doing, processors are doing. Um, Let's talk about beer style for a minute. So you mentioned Vienna Lager. It's one of my favorite spring summer beers. I've had some good ones. One, a couple years ago, Interbarber made one called Dead Presidents that I was really jamming with. Um, why Vienna Lager? Is it is it because of the malt, or did you want to make that style and you sought out the malt? Uh, no, we we that was an interesting conversation or several conversations to get to that style. Originally, I thought like, oh, we should make like an alt beer. Well, alt beer is kind of like hybrid amber lager. It's not all that far off, right? I mean, it's malt forward. Uh, and and then we talked about doing like I like all beers. I love all beer. And so we, you know, we could do an ESB, we could do something like this, but we were, th- we were like, we should do a lager because, you know, we, not all of us get to brew lagers. We had some time. They had the tank space and tank time that they could offer uh, at Big Alice, so that made sense. And, you know, Exhibit A is kind of a hop-forward brewery generally. If, if, you, if you ask the general person who is aware of us, they'd be like, oh, yeah, the cat's meow. You know, we, they brew a lot of IPAs. I mean, we have, we're a portfolio brewery, though. We have more non-IPAs than we do IPAs, right? And so I think, you know, we, we leaned into the style after talking about the grains that were, we knew would be, one, available, ones we wanted to use, and ones that would kind of reflect the spirit behind Square Foot, which is you know, barley, wheat, rye, emmer, buckwheat, whatever we're using. I mean, we, we're sticking with, I think, just barley in this case. But, um, but you know, we, we had an opportunity to really highlight the grain that we're proud to use every day. How specific do you get, like, your transparency? You know, the, the maltster, do you know the actual farm that, that's raising the grain for this project? Yeah, yeah, that's going to be it'll it'll that information will be on the label I believe or at least in the you know in the social media stuff for sure. Um the thing that I've really enjoyed about some of the local malt houses that I've worked with, uh, mostly Valley Malt in this case, but if I want to know where the grain came from, I just I can find out, you know, and and actually sometimes it's it's actually generally it's on my packing slip. It's not necessarily on the bags, but by lot but the lot number is and I can look up the lot number by my purchase order, but not my purchase order, but my, uh, my delivery slip. And I can be like, Oh yeah, that's 
definitely came from Oshner Farm or this came from another farm. Um, and that part to me is like, that's the, that's the thing. That's like, I can, we, in, in the tap room, when people are like, oh yeah, we, we really like local beer. It's like, oh cool, so do we. And this is why we consider our beer so local because we, you know, we've got the local water, we've got the local labor, but you know, the hops in this grow in Germany, <laughs> you know, you know, because there are no tetanangs grown in the U.S. that I feel comfortable putting into this beer. So I do take, I do compromise in that sense, I guess, if you, if you will. Um, I think it's important to, for, for us, at least for me as a brewer, I want to still have an authentic tribute. If I'm trying to highlight a style like Kolsch in this, in this case, it needs to be it needs to be spot on. I can't just mess around with it. It needs to kind of reflect the spirit, the true authenticity of that style and that place and the culture. And uh, you nailed it with the, I actually had had a sample of this Goody Two Shoes cold style last month, I believe. And um, you really nailed it. There's the dryness. So you're saying that's again, that's because of the certain malt used? Well, it's the fermentation profile and, and, uh, and the mash regimen for sure. Um, but yeah, the malt bill that we use delivers, you know, a, you know, it, the yeast will ferment pretty dry. Um, you know, we, we tend to keep it right around two Play-Doh, um, with a finish, which is, I mean, we can dig into the numbers if we want, but, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's relatively dry, but it definitely has some sweetness because the malt is present. And it, sometimes people would refer those flavors as refer to those flavors as kind of like not wine-like, but having that sort of Venus quality. Um, I pick up cereal. I get grain and cereal in the finish of the beer. Um, that's just where my palate lies. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's such a treat to be able to brew a beer with ingredients that are so great, but also that ends up being this wonderful product. You know, th this beer, Goody Two Shoes, when people say, like, there, there was a joke, I think it was... Uh, uh, Yepe from Evil Twin said that there's people that that everyone, they're trying to make beer that's for people that don't like beer mm -hmm. and with different flavors and things. And when I drink this beer, I'm like, this tastes like beer. Yeah. How 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 would you describe to someone that's new? Like my daughter's going to be 21 soon. You know, they're drinking non. Let's call them non-beer products. Yeah. And how do you explain to someone what should beer taste like? And what is this Kolsch, if, if that's what beer should taste like? Yeah, so I start with um, non-sugar cereal. So whether it's grape nuts, you know, Kella, you know, Special K, some kind of like gr grain-driven cereal, Cheerios, heat it up. Tell me what that smells like. Tell me what that tastes like. Don't put milk in it, just, you know. And I do start with that cereal kind of mindset if you will. And I think it's important for us to realize that like beer flavored beer is what we've, why do we need to escape that? You know? And I think there are consumers out there that are not looking for beer flavored beer. They're looking for these pastry beers or beers that just kind of push other flavor components. Uh, I love beer. So why not make a beer that actually tastes like it? You know, but I, I tend to I mean, grape nuts is my favorite cereal, so I tend to lean on that one a little bit. And I do say, like, it tastes like grape nuts when we're mashing in. Like, it smells like it. It, it. And I'll take, like, a little bit of mash and I'll put it in a big bowl of grape 
nuts and I'll mix it up and I'll be like, there's my cereal. That's a good dividing line. Start with grape nuts and uh, you can leave the, fr- what, I don't even know the other cereals' names, Fruity Something and Captain Something yeah, on the sidelines. Yeah, get rid of all those wow. sugar cereals. Hey man, we're off to a great start here. I'm, I can't believe it. I'm at Exhibit A Brewing. I've wanted to come here for six years. I took a train from Boston. I got off in Framingham and I walked the scary streets of Framingham. Took some photos too, which I'll be posting. And I'm here. We'll take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Hi, I'm Kiki Luya, the Executive Director of Restaurant Workers Community Foundation. And I'm the host of a new podcast called Shift Work. In the last six months, some 6,500 restaurants have closed their doors, and there's never been a time when restaurants and their 12 million workers have been more vulnerable. It's time to transform hospitality. With Shift Work, a podcast made in collaboration with RWCF and HRN, we're shifting the conversation about how the restaurant food you love makes its way to the table. What does it really take to make that experience happen? And who are the countless workers responsible? We're talking porters, cleaning crew, prep cooks, servers, baristas, hosts, bartenders, barbacks, managers, sommeliers, and chefs. I'll also introduce you to organizations that are leading industry transformation. We'll discuss mental health, fair pay, racial justice, and how hospitality can change for the better. We need it. Listen to and follow Shift Work on your favorite podcast app. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host of Beer Sessions Radio. And don't forget to join us, support, and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. So I'm out here in Framingham, Massachusetts, not too far outside of Boston, uh, with a malt and, uh, like, local source-driven brewer, Matthew, of Exhibit A Brewing. All right, Matthew, we're having a great conversation. So you're saying you like beer-flavored beer. I do. I do. <laughs> I like other things too, you know, like water and cereal. <laughs> well, there's, there's some fun. So I, I got to try some of your beers recently. And what I, there was one called Briefcase Porter. And what I liked was actually on the, the can, it had a nice description of, of the malts. And it, this one said, this porter satisfies without being heavy, toasted, dark, bread and nutty aromas followed by lightly roasted coffee dark chocolate blackberry finish da 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 i mean that's pretty great like to to read on the beer label the the malt inspiration is pretty cool yeah so when we first opened uh, i'm a big fan of porter as as a whole um and so i i'm actually going to open up another beer here jimmy (laughs) tell me what it is this is uh just a kitten which is our vic secret and mosaic-driven uh, New England IPA. It's about five percent IPA, five percent alcohol. Uh, it's loaded with uh, Ochsner Farms uh, Warthog wheat and uh, a bunch of um, Vava Vom in there as well. Some some uh, oats. And if you're just tuning in, we're um, we're kind of getting ready for the Craft Mall Conference, which is which is a little later in February. It's virtual this year, but. Um, Matthew is one of the dedicated uh, craft malt users um, in New England. Um, so Porter, man, Porter has a style. I love it. I love hearing about brown ale and, and porters. Not a couple weeks ago, we talked with Julia Hers, who's now the the new head of the Homebrewers National Homebrewers Association, American Homebrewers Association, and we just talked about beer styles and how exciting that is. And we were talking about beer flavored beers, and I, I really do feel that homebrewing is going to tie people in 
to really knowing more about beer styles and traditional beer styles. And, and, um, so how does Porter fit into that? Cause I feel like you, you gotta know Porter is, is Porter a hard beer to make? Uh, you, you know, it's funny as a home brewer, uh, and this is like early mid nineties, uh, it was the first style of beer I made and I had a dog named Kona. So <laughs> I, yeah. So I made a, a Kona coffee Porter, of course. And, uh, my email was even like Kona brewer and my beer advocate names Kona brewer. And I had all the, you know, it's, they, it all stuck. The dog's been gone for more than a decade. You never got sued for that now. <laughs> no, but I did get an email at some point or a letter asking if I would be willing to give it up. And I was like, no, I don't see a reason. I don't, you know. Uh, it was from a brewery that used that word. So um, that was forever ago. But, um, yeah, I mean, Porter to me was an important style to kind of, wa- I wanted to master it. I wanted to be great at brewing it. Um, when I was in college, I was buying, you know, 50-liter kegs of Sierra Porter and Anchor Porter. And we just fell in love with that style. And talk about a malt-focused product, you know. And so... Uh, I worked at another brewery here in Massachusetts called Mayflower Brewing and Mayflower Porter kind of has since become, I would say, one of the locally known, uh, very popular porters. Uh, It's probably one of the most popular here in Massachusetts. Uh, I'd like to believe that our briefcase porter is on its heels for sure. Uh, So briefcase porter kind of came out of this idea that every brewery should have a porter. Um, You know, briefcase as albeit as as unnecessary as a briefcase actually is, find me anyone working that has a computer that doesn't have some kind of briefcase type of device, whether it's a you know a shoulder bag, but it's a briefcase, so it's necessary. Um, as is a porter in your portfolio as a brewery, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and what I did when I got first started is I called Andrea, and I was like, "Hey, I need some roasted grains." She's like, "Yeah, we don't do that, sort of." And I'm like, well, what do you mean? She's like, well, we can kind of make you some roasted grains. I'm like, cool, let's do it. So they had a tiny little roasting device, and they were making me like 15 pounds at a time or 10 pounds at a time, which was not sustainable. And I said, look, I'm going to buy all of my roasted grains from you. Let's put together a plan. They invested in a, uh, a roaster um, that they now have and has been operating for f- several years now. And so we get brown malt from them, like in the old English tradition of brown malt, we get chocolate wheat, chocolate rye, chocolate barley, roasted barley, we use roasted oats, um, and and everything kind of in between. And uh, in our porter, we have a combination of chocolate wheat, a uh, bit of roasted barley, and, and a bunch of brown malt. And what I think that delivers for us is it gives us big, smooth, ready, toasty quality without kind of being overly bitter, overly roasted. So it doesn't have that big astringent character that some of the grains can deliver. Um, and so we're pretty, you know, judicious with it, if you will. And we, we, we look at that porter as kind of like drinking beer. You know, it's not meant to just kind of, it's meant to blow your socks off flavor wise, but it's meant to be super drinkable and uh, approachable. And, uh, you know, and, and for me, it's like, lawnmower beer just happens to be dark <laughs> you know well, that that's that's how it should be you know yeah. that the the famous irish dry stout is only like three and a half percent i think yeah i mean this is it happens to be five and a half percent or 5.4 percent but but it's super drinkable and uh and generally speaking when I, I i like to lead if people are like i don't really like beer i'm like well 
I could start you with the lighter one with the Kolsch and that tastes like beer. So that might not be what you're looking for. So I tend to actually go right to the dark beers. Like if it's a person that generally isn't into beer, but they drink like coffee and they like chocolate and I try to approach it from that, uh, you know, that palate sense. It's like, do you like coffee? And find me someone who doesn't drink coffee. I don't happen to drink coffee, but I love coffee. I just can't handle caffeine. You can tell from my energy level, I don't need it. Um, but with, with, Beers that are like kind of putting out those flavors, whether it's coffee, chocolate, toasted bread, a palate that isn't into beer may very much love that style because one, they may not even be aware of it and they likely aren't, especially if they've kind of been at beer, beer averse. So it's kind of like saying, do you like red wine? You might want to try this. Yeah, yeah. So it, if we can t ask about one of your favorites that you don't brew, um, a dark beer that you could say i enjoy drinking oh my gosh um i mean there's so many um just pick one <laughs> i mean I, I mean you mentioned chris loring before and uh, i haven't seen chris in forever but that uh that chino pivo beer that he makes that dark kind of polish lager I think is it's a I think it's a Polish lager. I don't know, but it's Czech. Dark. Maybe it's, it's Polish, Czech. but it's, it's it's Czech. It's a dark lager. It's incredible. I really like that one. Um, you know, it, it if I go back to like in my head of what beers I really liked then, I mean Sierra Porter was that beer. Like it brought me into dark beers. Uh, same with Anchor Porter. Um, you know, locally, I would say uh, you know there's a couple of really good other porters. Obviously, we mentioned Mayflower before. Um, but yeah, it's sometimes hard. I don't, I don't get out enough to drink other people's. No, I just, I was just going to ask you that, but I, I, I'm there with you too. Notch Brewing with their, their Czech darks. And I just had uh shillings, uh, it's called modernism. That's also a, a Czech style dark lager. So we're on kind of the same page. Um, I'm, I'm holding the mic here. I want to hear about cat's meow because, uh, just locally in Boston area, people have said that, yeah, that's, that's the go-to, how did you that become your like top beer, and was that the intention when you made it? I mean, with any portfolio, you just never know what's going to take off. You know, um, we started with this naming regimen called demo tape, and every beer was demo tape. Demo tape one, two, three, up to twenty-seven is where we stopped, I think. And demo tape one was this kind of golden colored beer that was just a test of the brew brew system and test of the canning system. Demo Tape 2 was an IPA, and Demo Tape 4 was closer to the Cat's Meow IPA. And then we just went with it. Um, I think we didn't, you know, when I got started, I was like, I don't want animals on my label. I don't want, like, animal references. And now I got, like, hair, I got rabbits and cats. Oh, yeah, hair razor. I, I special order that, just so you know. Today. Hair razor double IPA. Yeah, I'll send you some home because we, we're canning it right now. I, I think that it was pretty it, it happened pretty quick that we realized that this cute little cat on the label was going to do well for us. Um, we developed the beer over time. Like it wasn't, it is not the same beer that it was when we first brewed it. Um, and I'm proud of that. And in fact, I think most breweries would have to admit to themselves, yeah, our beers change, you know, agriculture changes, the ingredients change, the seasons change things like the temp, the barometric pressure makes our boil different. You know, it's like everything is, you know, handmade here. So I think the exciting thing for us is really nailing down what we're intending the beer to be and then try to get as close to that every time. 
And with the cat's meow, the last, say, three years, it's really been honed in and tasting on point basically every time we brew it. Um, if it's not perfect, we don't sell it. We dump it, you know, and we, thankfully we've, I don't know that we've ever had a batch of cat that we didn't, uh, that wasn't as intended, but, um, we've had other beers that have fallen short and we dump them. But, um, with that beer, uh, Citra, Mosaic, Eldorado, those hops, uh, are the leaders in that beer. Uh, again, with Warthog Wheat from Oshner Farm, the Vava Vom, and some, some flaked oats in this one. And, uh, and we have, um, an English barley that we use, uh, called Golden Promise from Simpsons, um, which we, we actually really adore that grain. And, you know, if we could just get one from them, that's local here, maybe have those guys grow those grains here. But, uh, until that happens, we'll, we'll just suffer through the amazing Simpsons. You know, when I walked in, Matt, you, you said, Oh, I was talking to someone who knows you. And, and in my mind, I was, I've been thinking about Tor Eschner up in, in the Finger Lakes and him, him tasting me on your Danko Rye beer. I don't know, 2016. Tell me again what that beer is, and and is there anything you want to say about this specialty grain farmer? Because if you've ever been to his farm, you know that this guy is a master mechanic with every type of machinery. Is He's tweaked to work to make the grain and the harvesting of the grain, everything better. Then you go into his house, and the steps leading up to his house creak and are loose because he puts everything, he leaves it out there in, 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 in the grain farm. Yeah, well, first I want to say this, and I'm embarrassed to say I have not been t- to see Tor. Because you're too busy working here. Busy. He understands. I do ship him some beer on occasion, so he gets a little gift pack, a little little uh, care package every once in a while. Um, I am going to visit him both this spring and also at harvest um, this year. He does not know that, so he will find out after hearing this, but I do plan to come and visit this year, and I'm, I want to bring some of our staff up there and really see what's going on in the Finger Lakes at his farm. Um, but hanging out with Tor many, many times here, here in Massachusetts, um, at Andrea's house and during Barley Fest, and we've done some other things together. Uh, he and Rachel are amazing. I, I can't stress enough that there's something really amazing about doing business with people that you like and that you have a ton of uh, you know, appreciation for what they do, but also like reliability. You know, I rely on them to grow this incredible malt or uh, sorry, to grow this incredible grain that can then be processed by these monsters. I can't imagine not having that reliable source, you know? And so that's why we do this because the more we buy, the more reliable they become because they can rely on us to be, to be their customers, you know? Um, so Danko, Right. I, so home brewing again, mid nineties. Uh, I moved to Colorado in 1998 after I graduated college and then went to Colorado for a couple of years. And there was a homebrew shop that was closing and he had all this grain like on clearance. And so I bought a whole bag, a 55 pound bag of like British rye malt. I'd never used it before, but I grew up, you know, Jewish kid in New England. I was like, rye is the thing. Rye bread. Yeah, rye bread. My parents always had like, you know, rye pumpernickel bread in the house. And I always loved rye. I loved caraway seeds. So I developed this idea for a beer called, uh, it was basically called Rye Knot, which was uh, a rye beer with uh, sort of dry hopped, if you will, with caraway seed. 
and it was like spicy and and peppery and really interesting. And I did brew a few batches of those beers as a home brewer. And then I also, uh, at a brew pub I worked at on Martha's Vineyard called Offshore Ale, I brewed a beer called Rye Hop, which was kind of a, in spirit of that. Um, I still plan to do some projects here uh, with with that idea. Um, but I, I from brewing those beers with rye back then, I knew... One, I knew how original the beers tasted and how there were no beers like this around. Finding rye beer was really difficult. I mean, there was some cool European things coming in, but not a lot of places were brewing rye beers. Sometimes you find a brew pub here and there, but there was nothing in the store. Like in terms of the Rogan beers? Rogan beers, yeah. And so there was some of that, and a lot of those are smoky and wacky and interesting. But for my palate back then, I was like, I don't even know what half of this is. You know, mind you, I was 22 or whatever, 25. But I think uh, I I just grasped onto it. I just found rye to be super tasty, and and I it kind of came from maybe a little bit of like caring about my heritage and the rye bread thing, and uh, and maybe you know there was there was one uh, rye is their juniper berries in my beer, and that was like a rye beer with whirlpooled with juniper berries and rose hips i think and then we dry hopped it with like crystal hops or something and it was real gentle and great real great beer but i think there's there's so much out there that we don't even touch on and as a production brewery i kind of need to do the things that we're good at and you know pay the bills and give us some creative freedom but like the staff back there is like we want to try this and i'm like oh let's go for it let's do it and so we have some we don't have a pilot system here but we have a way of making small batch beers out of say wort that we're making for other beers and we can ferment those separately or we can um, age them, condition them separately, dry hop them different, whatever. And so we're, we're working on projects like that. We have, and basically that's all tap room only stuff that, you know, we'll do like a, I don't know, we, we've, we're doing, we're working on a, um, a new fruit beer uh, called Panda Punch and that's a, like a kettle sour. And so they're like, well, what can we do with like, can we like, take some of it and not fruit it and not put the hibiscus in and then do something else with it. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Take a few barrels out and play with it. See what happens. So it's fun. So you, you mentioned the tap room. So we're in Framingham. So if you don't drive or you're in Boston, you can just jump on a train and come out here. It's not that far. I like it. I, I like these old industrial towns. Um, but we're in a brewery. Like this is a real working brewery. Um, is the tap room here also? Yeah, yeah. So we're actually here in one of the sort of side rooms. Um, we're in the process now of designing a whole new expansion for the tap room that's going to go into the office area um, with a kitchen and the whole thing. So we're going to definitely expand our tap room plans. Uh, you can see, uh, not the people listening, but Jimmy can see that we have a couple pinball machines here. Um, they're fun. And then we have uh we do comedy nights, live music, always original live music. We don't hire cover bands. Not, it's nothing really wrong with a cover band, but like we, we're in a, you know, because of the pandemic, a lot of these indie bands that are original, doing original music, have no place to play. And they haven't had a place to play for two years. So when we opened, Kelsey Roth and I, Kelsey's our GM, he is big into indie music and original bands. And so we immediately said, okay, we're not hiring cover bands. We're going to hire bands that play original music. They could toss in a Fleetwood Mac or a Van Halen cover if they want. But the reality is, is we want original music in this place. And we've really done a great job of having that happen. So in the brewery on Fridays, production shuts down at 4 o'clock. 
we're done. We're done for the day. It's kind of a cleanup day anyway. We don't do a lot of production on Fridays, and we we rope off the tanks, the canning line. Everything's t- you know kind of protected, uh, or the guest is protected, I should say. And then um, and we put up a big twelve foot movie screen and my parents rug from the eighties for the drummers, and we, <laughs> and we just do it. And we have live. Because drummers need rugs. Apparently the drummer needs a rug and I, and anytime I see the drummer or the band comes in, I'm like, I got to tell you about this rug. <laughs> and it was literally, it's some kind of Persian rug. My stepmom bought in the probably early eighties and I had it in the dorm rooms in college. And the, that poor rug has been through the ringer, but <laughs> I will say, I, I love that. I think about uh, Brooklyn brewery in the late nineties before it got to expand and, uh, but their their production area was the same thing. They'd rope it off, and that would be the tap room. And yeah. there's good vibes there, man. You really got a special place out here. I I walked as a great little. What's the place on the corner? Just for local color, that's like a, a some kind of a taco pupusa place. Yeah, yeah. So there's like five places to get pupusa around here, um, which is amazing because we're constantly like, you know, what's the best pupusa in the area? There's so much to choose from. So that place on the corner used to be like a, just a crappy, like convenience store, Raj shop selling like incense and, you know, an Atticode, you know, Atticode coffee. Uh, he closed, um, and then it became like a vape store, which we were all kind of like, well, that's lame. And then the vape ban happened a couple of years ago. And then that store closed and it was vacant for a long time. And then we heard that this guy was coming in tacos and more. And we're like, sweet, new, another, another taco place. So we have I'll tell you, if you take the train, I'm going to push for the train because I'm into trains. Commuter train from Boston, the Framingham Worcester line, get off in Framingham. There's, I get out, there's a, there's a little, some kind of taco place. There's a bakery. Yeah. You keep walking, then there's a, a Brazilian restaurant. Yeah, there's a Brazilian bakery, and then there's a Brazilian restaurant, Taras Basilias. And there's so many uh, Brazilian restaurants. Brazilian steakhouse. Brazilian steakhouse. Um, and uh, and then there's uh, Papusa Grill, which is the little tiny kind of hole-in-the-wall place that makes, the, in my opinion, the best papusa in the area. Um, and they, uh, they're wonderful. Like, you go in, and they've got, like – homemade horchata and like they they do it right they do it right do people come here and walk from the train yeah yeah absolutely certainly in the summer more um once when our beer gardens open and and we're outside and we got live music during the day on the weekends um yeah we we were finding that we had a lot of guests coming on foot um and bicycle which is cool where where i uh, you know we we put in a bike you know we'll, where you can lock your bike up and stuff like that and the town asked us to do that when we first opened i was like they were like, it's required. And I'm like, it doesn't need to be required. I'm going to do it anyway. Like, I want people to show up on their bicycles, you know? And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many there's so many great spots around here. Um, I mean, Framingham, we're right on the on this creek behind our brewery. And right on the other side is a, is a huge neighborhood full of families. We have a lot of regulars that come in that live in the neighborhood. And they all walk or skateboard. You know, somebody's, you know, they're, they're getting here somehow and mostly not in vehicles. Uh, which is really kind of amazing. You know, I love the fact that, you know, we have a place where people can walk to um, and enjoy. And then, and, you know, our neighbors down the street have a brewery, Jack's Abbey, and we you can walk between the breweries. So that's always a plus um, to be able to, you know, kind of one stop in the area. Um, you can park and then, you know, kind of go to both places and not have to drive around too much. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that part's really great. Way back when. How did you find this location, and why did you open in Framingham? Uh, not on purpose. Um, I was on a 
on a trip with High Horse at the time. We were doing a little staff trip and we did our Boston trip. Jack's Abbey was the first stop, which is this location. So the, so this is Jack's Abbey's original location at 81 Morton Street. And I walk in and, and I'm looking at their setup and I'm like, wow, they are at capacity. There is no way they can grow at all in this space. And Jack was here and Sam, his brother, and we're talking and I'm like, yeah, when you guys decide to move out, let me know. And he kind of gave me this like, actually, we are already planning to move out and we are thinking about what we're going to do. I was like, well, I'll call you Monday. <laughs> and that conversation continued. And several months later, um, we were talking again. And I said, you know, I'm considering, I'll, I'll buy your equipment and uh, I'm going to pull it out of there and bring it to Hadley where we're going to build a brewery for High Horse. Um, and that project just kind of never came to fruition. And Jack said, actually, what we'd prefer anyway is to leave it here and have another brewery here in town. And to have a, to have a, the owner of a brewery that's pretty successful, has grown really well, obviously has proven to be even more successful with their new, new brewery, to say to me, we want you as a neighbor, was very telling and uh, pretty authentic, too. I, I felt uh, welcomed, and I felt like it was a great idea to, like, you know, there's other neighborhoods that have multiple breweries and they kind of all feed off of each other. And I'm like, yeah, I'll be the little brewery next to Jack's. No problem. You know? And you know, that, that's a great story. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's the way it happened literally. And it kind of, everything kind of fell into place and then we're opening. They're all here for our opening. They're, you know, we have so many friends that work over there. We share friends and we have share guests of course. And so I find out a couple weeks in, a couple months in we're open and all of a sudden, like, we get all these guests and they keep telling us, yeah, they keep sending us over here. Apparently, part of their tour was, you know, their brewery tour was like, you got to go see our old place. It's down the street. There's a new brewery there called Exhibit A and you got to go visit them. And so for them to tell the story about this location, I think certainly helped us on some levels, but it also kind of solidified the idea of camaraderie. And I think that some of the, you know, some people would say, oh, like, you know, brewery business is like, you know, 99% a-hole free or whatever. And I, you know, I'd like to consider myself, you know, part of that 1% or whatever, but, <laughs> but I do think it's, it's mostly good people in this business, you know, and I think we're all after success. We're all looking for, uh, you know, a nice paycheck for our staff and ourselves and all that. But I think the most important piece is creating this camaraderie within the industry so that, you know, the rising tide happens and we all are on top of it. That's an amazing story about good karma, and that's kind of what not just uh, craft beer is about, but it's also um, just for location and finding a place. You know, there's a good history here. You didn't have to go in and blow all this money and build out from scratch and look for gas lines and water lines and sewer lines and all that. Yeah, that was helpful. Um, but I won't pretend for a minute we didn't blow, we didn't spend a bunch of money. <laughs> I mean, we renovated the whole space. Um, we redid the floors. We repiped stuff. I reconfigured the brew house. I put in a canning line. I added tanks. Uh, we renovated the entire tap room, um, and we created our own space out of a space that existed. Um, but the en the enormous help of having an existing footprint done, you know, I didn't have to get. A boiler installed. I didn't have to get, like you're saying, gas lines run, water lines run. I didn't have to do any of that. All of that was done. And 
the town kind of understood what we were doing because they, you know, Jacks had been doing it for five years in this space. So they're like, I'm like, yeah, we're pretty much going to do what they did. But it's we're like, we're taking work. over the pig farm. Right. Don't worry. Your neighbors won't be upset. Right. Yeah. It's basically the same thing. And so we, uh, I think we had, a, I think there, there's some luck there as far as like, you know, right place, right time. And uh, I have a friend who's in the beer business who, who is like, you know, he had an, an opportunity to uh, build from scratch or buy an existing facility. And I was like, just buy the existing facility. There's so many headaches you're not going to have to deal with. There's other headaches that you get from that. But, you know, I still find kind of goofy plumbing and goofy stuff that would like we're working with our plumber this morning. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know why this pipe is like that. Let's fix that. You know, and that's just it was done that way back then. And we're going to change it. You know, um, there's something really gratifying about that, though, because it helps to create. I, I, you know, any mistakes that were made, we've, we've either fixed them or we've learned to work with them or we've realized they weren't probably even that big of a mistake, you know, and that, that part's kind of fun, like facility wise. You know, it kind of leads me to, uh, what is your day to day like? I mean, you're the brewer and kind of co-owner, co-founder. Yeah. So my day is, my day has changed a lot in the last couple of years. I mean, our staff has also changed. So we have a fully brand new staff back there. I have two brewers, uh, Kyle and Joe. They're all robots now? Yeah. Yeah. They're just, I just plug them in at night. Yeah. <laughs> so Kyle and Joe are our brewers. Uh, Dara and Frank kind of run the packaging side of things. And then Andrew is kind of this quality and seller and packaging and kind of everything. Um, and we have actually not as much experience back there as far as like years of brewing um, as some other breweries. But what we have in energy and desire and passion is you cannot measure it. It's unbelievable what they're doing back there. I also have two new people starting in a week. Uh, this woman, Justine and a gentleman by the name of Brendan and they're Brendan's pretty green. Justine's been a brewer for three or four years. So we, we have some, you know, some experience coming in, which is really exciting. Uh, I still get to brew. Not as often as I used to. I was brewing two to three days a week up until about a month and a half ago. Um, before that, I was brewing like once or twice a month, about two years, like before the pandemic started. Once the pandemic hit, I was pretty much brewing. I was on the deck pretty much every day. And um, that's fine. It is what it is. I, I still enjoy brewing. I think my... The most enjoyable part of my day is that kind of walkthrough when I'm like, they've mashed in at six in the morning. I, I stroll in kind of leisurely at quarter of eight or whatever. They've already mashed in. I know that mash out's happening pretty soon for the first length. We're brewing two lengths every day. You know, they started kegging or they're setting up the canning line. Andrew's harvesting yeast. Dry hops are going in. Like there's all this cool stuff happening and I have I rely upon this staff a lot. They know what my expectations are. They're high. Um, we have we have you know a lot of SOP material that people can work with so that they understand the processes and what they need to do. Um, safety protocols, all of that stuff is really dialed in. And so I feel very confident in the staff. That part is amazing. And I've gone through stages of 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 actually not having as much confident confidence in some of our staff uh, over the years. Um, certainly not going to pick on anyone in particular. <laughs> and then let's but, talk about your GM. So what, what roles do you, does your GM fill? So I like to say that Kelsey Roth does every single thing in here except make beer. 
That's what he does. He is our compliance person. He does all of our design for our cans. He does, uh, you know, and I will say, well, you're looking at just a kitten. So my daughter actually drew the kitten in the yarn and he, Kelsey did the design elements. And so, but Kelsey. How old was your daughter when she drew that? She was 18 when she did that. That looks pretty good. 20. Yeah. She's in art school. And it was just kind of a fun little drawing of Toby being the little kitten that he used to be. Um, that's our adult cat now. But yeah, I mean, Kelsey does everything. He, he, when, when people call in for, you know, or, or do email orders for, for either beer getting shipped out or merch getting shipped out, he's handling all of that. Uh, he, when I say compliance, I literally mean like he deals with all. Of you them. mean literally the the direct to consumer mm-hmm. shipping that you actually have to do that? Yep, we actually do that ourselves. We have boxes that we build and then put them in, put the twelve, put three to four packs into a box and ship them out. Um, and that's something that you know, I, I would love to say I'd like to hire someone just that does that. We don't quite have that much volume yet that would justify that, but we're shipping beer every week and. And uh, and we're shipping a lot of merch. Actually, I, I just got a call this morning for a guy that he lives like 15 miles from here, and he wants me to ship him a sweatshirt. I'm like, I'll I'll ship you a sweatshirt, but it just seems silly. Um, just actually, like, you're wearing a, so this Kolsch style ale that I really like. Yeah, Goody Two Shoes. You're wearing the Goody Two Shoes yeah, t-shirt sweatshirt. sweatshirt. Yeah, Kolsch on the real Kolsch exhibit A. Yeah, okay, I'm gonna ask you about uh, one more beer. Um, I love all your IPAs. Um, I got to try the Sunday Paper Imperial Stout. Yeah. Tell me about that beer, but also the name, because I know music too. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and some people like that. You want to sing it with me? We could sing. I'm not, I'm not. Sunday Papers. <laughs> is that Joe Jackson, right? Yeah, Joe Jackson. So, so the reference is certainly that. But originally, I was I was hanging out with my dad. We were in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. Uh, and this is years ago. It's probably six years ago before the brewery opened. And I was like, I got to come up with a name for a stout. And I had this idea for like what the brand looked like. And the brand was basically like a mug, a circular mug stain on newsprint. And the idea that I had came from a poster I had seen that was basically like a woman sitting on her porch. She's got her feet up. It's a Sunday morning and she's reading the paper and she's putting her mug down. And every time she puts her mug down, it kind of creates another stain. And I just thought it was an interesting idea. Now It wasn't from the song. Well, so it, the song came after. So so that that was what was was going through my head. I wanted the, the you know, nobody reads the paper anymore. My dad would, it was a big deal for my dad to, for us to get together and read the paper. And, and so I, I don't remember exactly what, ha- what the order of how things happened, but I, I'm pre- there, there was a Joe Jackson CD up at that house. It came on, the song came on, and I was like, oh, Sunday paper. That's like a great name for a stand. Read it in the Sunday papers. Right, right. And so, I mean, if you want to just stand up and sing, go. And so we, so that's when it occurred to me that, oh, I've got this idea that's like visual, but also there's kind of a cool music reference, which is something we always enjoy. Danko also is kind of a music reference from you know, Rick Danko. I didn't know that. Yeah, so Rick Danko. You know, I just thought, oh, Danko Grain. Danko wait, wait. Rye. The Danko Rye from Tor Eschner, who's my buddy. Yeah. That beer. What is that beer called again? Because I want it's it. It's called Danko. Danko IPA or just Danko? Uh, Danko. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Danko. And it says in small letters, like, you know, 
IPA with rye. And that's coming up. So we're going to jump. So yeah. the Craft Malt Conference is coming up, and, and we're talking with a very local malt supporter, brewer, uh, Matthew, at Exhibit A. I want to circle back to you're your working on these concepts of what building better beer. What is that? And give us some another shout out for your special project. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to pretend that that is all that original of an idea. I mean, for me, the the idea of conceptualizing conceptualizing a beer starts with raw material, right? And I, my sister happens to be a filmmaker, and her dad made this reference years ago that editing film is like making beer. And we we're like, what? How is that like making beer? He's like, well, look, I have all this raw material, footage, sound you know, characters, and you have this raw material, grain, hops, character is the yeast and the water, whatever. You put it all together to this cohesive thing, and now you've got a finished product that someone can can, can consume, whether it's a beverage or a meal or, a, in his case, a film. So I was like, oh, I love that. And in order to build the beer, you need the best ingredients. I don't want, you know, you can make a, a pretty reasonably good film with pretty reasonably good material, good footage. But can you make a world-class film with kind of average footage? Probably not. Um, you can make a really good beer with great ingredients. But you could take really great ingredients and make this incredible beer, right? So I felt it was a bit of a a bit of a, uh, what's the word? Um, it was unfair to the beer, the finished beer, to not deliver or to not bring wonderful world-class, both local and not local ingredients to, to it. So for me, building a better beer was really centered around finding the best ingredients. And for me, at the, at the time, 20 years ago, the best ingredients, they weren't local. <laughs> they were in Europe. And they were in the Pacific Northwest for hops. So that's what I, that's how I built the beers. So now we have access to all of this local wonderful grain and hops and, and, and other materials that we could use. I've used like lemon balm and lemon verbena from Andrea's house, you know, that we put into a beer. Uh, honey from a local apiary, whatever. Like we have, there's so much access to other things that aren't just the four, the, the three typical ingredients you'd find in beer. Or two, I should say, malt and hops. But... Um, yeah, so building the beer actually for me stems from finding the best ingredients and having them be be purposeful. Like, what, what's the reason? Like, why am I using that malt in there? Why is that? Why is that particular rye malt that Danko? Why is that the one we want to use? And in that case, it's because the the British rye tends to be really spicy. The the grain coming from the Midwest that's the rye grain tends to be like real peppery. I wanted more bread. I didn't want that super pepperiness from it. I wanted it to be smoother and softer. And Danko delivered that. And we were like, oh, and it's cool. I, I think that that's, when you first mentioned rye, you were talking about, you know, Jewish pumpernickel and caraway seeds. And I think a lot of people think of that. And I remember 12 years ago, there, there were more brewers trying to use rye, rye IPAs. And I think the note that, that wasn't hit right was when they were trying to mimic flavors 
of other products. Right. But I'm totally there with you. When I think of like a good rye, because I'm, I'm into multi-grain cereals and breads. To me, it's just, it's like there's a barley, there's an emmer, there's a rye. They're, they're, they're shades of, of grain, right? Yeah, all of it. Yeah, each one has their, you know, there's many variables within each one. And like to me, the, the, the beer that really got me, that struck me at, in, on a commercially available level was Hop Rod Rye. And be it what you know, you know, Bear Republic, great brewery, great people over there. Great one, man. Circa two thousand five, six, yeah. seven, eight. Yeah, and so I was introduced to that beer um, by them um, at Beer Fest here in Boston. You know, it was like a beer advocate fest, and uh, I think my booth was next to their booth or something, and we were hanging out. And uh, yeah, and I, I, I was like, oh, yeah, I got rye beer too. Like, check so, it out. So, so what is that? That beer is a great example. The Hot Rod Rye from Bear Republic. What did that do with the rye that others weren't doing? They just had a great balance. I don't know exactly what they were up to, but I, I mean, that was a pretty hoppy beer too. Um, and big, like it wasn't just like a little 5% beer. I think it was probably six or 7%. I don't recall exactly, but I just found it to be super balanced. And, you know, if you look at our logo, the scale, you know, I'm all about balance and in some cases imbalance when it's appropriate. Um, but I do find you know, with rye, especially, you got to have balance. You got to have some sweetness to, to offset that peppery. You got to have, you know, the bread is going to be the, in the middle that's going to deliver on, you know, the, the, the mouthfeel and the character of the beer. Um, rye tends to dry out a lot. Like the malt itself will, you know, that the sugars in there will ferment. Um, and so it's, you got to be careful not to make it too dry because then it's just going to show all of that pepperiness and it's going to lack the bread that you want. And it's going to lack the, the smoothness that you want. Uh, one last question. We're going to push, go back to talking about our local monster, Valley Malt. Yeah. You mentioned two examples where you, you work with them directly. One was the Dexter malt to like refine your Kolsch. The other example was when you went to them for Porter, you wanted roasted malts. Is there another example where they've either come to you and ask for your help or feedback or vice versa? We, yeah, we do that all the time. I mean, I spend so much time with them. In fact, um, yeah, I mean, we, I can't even think of a particular example other than uh, the roasted oats in the Sunday paper. So we can kick right back to Sunday paper thoughts. Um, I, I didn't know what a roasted oat would deliver. We didn't know. Uh, we did know that the husk isn't going to deliver the same color as a barley husk, um, so maybe we're not going to get as much color in the in the in the mash or in the wort, but we will get character from it. And so we use roasted oats, um, and we offset the fact that we're not getting much color from them by using more, in this case, chocolate rye and roasted barley, and you know the the very dark malts and. I haven't brewed a batch of that beer without the oats, so I don't really know, but I've brewed other beers with oats and with roasted oats and then without those roasted oats. And that roast character, it's not acrid. It's not harsh. It is a smooth, just bomb. Unbelievable. Naturally sweet, right? Naturally sweet and, and just roasty without that overpowering acrid character, which is kind of the, you know, it's the only way I've been able to describe it is like that overly roasted coffee. That's like awful, you know? So I want that smooth, soft roast that's just penetrating the whole time you're drinking the beer. Well, um, 
Dude, thanks for taking. I said, dude, thanks for taking time with me because um, I, I could definitely talk to you a lot longer, and I'm I'm loving this. Uh, so it's just a kitten. I want to thank you, Matthew, because we're trying to put a little spotlight on just craft malt, local malt in general, especially with the craft malt conference coming up. Um, so thanks so much, man. Matthew, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Jimmy. I appreciate you having me. And a big shout out to Armin, our engineer, who's going to clean this up. And it will be live in February 2022. Thanks so much for joining us on Beer Sessions Radio. We'll catch you next time on Heritage Radio Network. All right. Woo! Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.